Confirm, please. Plan A abandoned. Alternate plan in effect. Correct. Our ionization layer is failing rapidly. We may need transportation. Are you prepared to leave? We have been since your last communication. Although Meacham and Adams are achieving positive results. Can you give us another time period? Impossible. But it is hoped that you will be able to complete the project here. Bring them. You will keep in contact until moment of departure. Then remove all evidence of installation. That is all. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Straight flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh. Oh. Iron Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold thing. You outlawed. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is a uh, reach point. You're listening to Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 674 for Sunday, March 11th, 2018. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is my favorite 1950s science fiction movie. It's This Island Earth, it stars Jeff Morrow, Faith Demurg, and Rex Reason. I know some of the longtime listeners might be saying, didn't Rico already cover this movie? And they would be right. Rico did cover This Island Earth on episode 390 back in June of 2012. Before I get into this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to This Island Earth. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie. beginning a strange journey, a journey that no Earth people have ever undertaken before. Universal International presents the most startling, the most imaginative and suspenseful science fiction drama ever brought to the screen. 
you'll marvel at the superior intelligence that unleashes its deadly ray. Or can kidnap an airplane in flight. They're pulling us up. Prisoners hurtling through endless space, speeding toward the unearthly furies of a planet gone mad. See sights never before dreamed by man. The battle between guided meteors and deadly rays. They're gonna hit us! They're gonna hit us! A planet doomed to destruction. while captive Earth people fight for their lives. It is indeed typical that you Earth people refuse to believe in the superiority of any world but your own. Run, Ruth, run! This Island Earth is a 1955 American science fiction movie. It was directed by Joseph Newman and Jack Arnold. Joseph Newman was best known for directing a movie called The Red Skies of Montana. It's a story about forest firefighters who also are paratroopers. Jack Arnold was best known for directing science fiction movies of the 1950s. He directed The Incredible Shrinking Man, It Came from Outer Space, and Tarantula. The movie was produced by William Allen, and he was best known for producing science fiction movies. He produced The Deadly Mantis, The Mole People, The Colossus of New York, The Space Children, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and its two sequels. The screenplay was written by Franklin Cohan and Edward G. Callahan. This Island Earth was based on a 1952 novel by Raymond F. Jones. It was first published in a magazine called Thrilling Wonder Stories. It was a series of three short stories, the first being The Alien Machine, the second being The Shroud of Secrecy, and the third being The Greater Conflict. This Island Earth was released June 1, 1955, and has a running time of 86 minutes. And here's the cast, starting at the top. Jeff Morrow, he played Exeter. He is best known for his roles in The Creature Walks Amongst Us, Kronos, and The Giant Claw. Next up, Faith Demurg. She played Dr. Ruth Adams. She is best known for her roles in Cult of the Cobra, It Came from Beneath the Sea, and Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. She was also one of Howard Hughes' girlfriends in the 1940s, but that's a story for another time. Next up, Rex Reason. He played Dr. Cal Meacham. He's best known for his roles in The Creature Walks Amongst Us and the TV series The Roaring Twenties. Next up, Lance Fuller. He played Brack, who was Exeter's assistant. He did a lot of TV work in the 1950s and 60s, and this movie is his claim to fame. Next up, Russell Johnson. He played Dr. Steve Carlson. He is best known for his roles in It Came From Outer Space, 
Attack of the Crab Monsters, and the TV series Gilligan's Island. He was the professor. Next up, Douglas Spencer. He played the monitor. He is best known for his roles in The Thing from Another World and The Diary of Anne Frank. Last but not least, Robert Nichols. He played Joe Wilson, Dr. Cal Meacham's assistant. He is best known for his role in The Thing from Another World. And that's all I have for movie information. Now let's get into today's movie. Today's movie starts at an airfield outside of Washington, D.C. This is where we meet the main character of today's movie. His name is Dr. Cal Meacham. He's a jet pilot and a nuclear scientist. We find Cal standing next to his jet, surrounded by a group of reporters and photographers. Just one more, please, Dr. Meacham. Hold it, please. A little closer to the wing, sir. A little more profile, Dr. Meacham. Yeah, he wants to get that far-away visionary look. <laughs> Cal, we know how tired you must be. We'll make it as short as possible. Far away, gentlemen. But I warn you, I am beginning to feel far away and visionary. <laughs> how about your conference with the Committee on Atomic Power? Well, not my conference. Twenty engineers and scientists were there. Twenty? Hardly a routine meeting, would you say? Yeah, and look, Cal, we won't buy the committees getting you VIPs together for a cocktail party. <laughs> All right, boys, I'll tell you this much. Under discussion was the biggest job we've ever tackled. The industrial application of atomic energy. But that's not news, Cal. We all know there have been several industrial reactors in work already. Well, let us say then that in the light of recent developments, those plants may already be obsolescent. Uh, electronics is your specialty. How does that fit in with atomic energy? You boys like to call this a push-button age. It isn't, not yet. Not until we can team up atomic energy with electronics. Then we'll have the horses as well as a cart. How long has the Army been handing out jets, Doctor? One of the boys at Lockheed handed me this one. I hope you taxpayers don't mind. Oh, Cal, when do we get to this push-button age? When fellas like me stop talking about it and get back to our lab. I'll see you gentlemen later. Goodbye. So long, Cal. Cal, are you working on anything along the uh, lines you mentioned? Roughly. Well, remember me, will you? I'm concentrating on the reconversion of certain common elements into nuclear energy sources. Huh? How's that again? <laughs> what counts is how I make it work. I see. Oh, good flight, Cal. Thank you. So long. So Cal jumps in his jet, takes off. He flies across the country to a private airfield somewhere outside of Los Angeles. Before landing, Cal wants to show off a little, so he does a barrel roll. Just as he finishes the barrel roll, his engines shut down. Cal has no power and is about to crash when the entire jet turns bright green. The jet immediately pulls up and lands safely at the airfield. Cal jumps out of the jet and is met by his assistant, Joe Wilson. Cal, you okay? Okay. What happened? How'd you bring it in? I didn't. Couldn't. What do you mean you didn't? Controls went out. Huh? That's right. No controls, no power. The plane died up there. I should Cal, be dead. I... I know everybody's seeing flying saucers and screwy lights up in the sky. Well, you can put me in the booby hatch, too, because so help me, I saw this ship turn a bright green up there. Are you sure, Joe? Positive. Did you hear anything? Yes. A high-frequency howl. Very high. All the time your ship was... Green? Did Webb see it? Unless he's blind. Check him. Right. Oh, and Joe, until we find out what happened, all three of us were blind. While Cal was in Washington, D.C., Joe was monitoring some of his experiments. There were some equipment failures, so Joe had to order some replacement parts. When the replacement parts arrived, they were little glass beads instead of big condensers. Cal looks at one of the glass beads and thinks it's got to be a joke. 
So Joe sets up one of the beats for testing and proves it's a condenser. Cal tells Joe to order some more replacement parts, and the next day they get an, an electronics catalog from an unknown company. What have you got? I don't know. There's no return address. Electronic service, unit number 16. Catherman tube with an endium complex of plus four. What are they talking about? I don't know, but this outfit has them. This isn't paper. Some kind of metal. Interocitor incorporating planetary generator. Interocitor with voltorator with astroscope. Here's something my wife could use in the house. An interocitor incorporating an electron sorter. Although she probably gained 20 pounds while it did all the work for her. You know, Joe, according to this, there's no limit to what it can do. Laying a four-lane highway at the rate of a mile a minute would be a cinch. Cal, maybe we've been working too hard. Complete line of interocitor parts, incorporating greater advances than hitherto known in the field of electronics. What exactly is an interocitor? I don't know, and I don't want to know. Well, I do. I want to know what it is and what it does. Order the list of parts on these pages. How are we going to build it? These symbols, they're like a foreign language. Anyway, we don't know the address. We ordered the condensers from Supreme by teletype. Yeah. Which means that somebody intercepted that order and sent us those beads. Here, try it again. Too darn smart. Maybe the dumbest man who ever walked this earth, Joe. So Cal wants to build an interocitor. So he tells Joe to order the parts to build one. When the parts are delivered, there are over 2,400 pieces. Cal and Joe find a starting point and begin to assemble the machine. Once the machine is assembled, Cal and Joe plug it in and nothing happens. Then all of a sudden, a strange voice is heard coming out of the machine and a strange man appears on its screen. You know what my kids would say? Dig this crazy mixed up plumbing. Plug it in, Joe. We'll see what happens. Now what do I do? Clear your screen, please. You can hear me? Of course. Use the intensifier disc. The one in your hand. Place it in position on your right. Now turn the control 18 degrees to the left. successfully accomplished your task, Dr. Meacham. You've assembled an interocitor, a feat of which few men are capable. Who are you? I'm called Exeter. I'm a scientist like yourself. Shall we say, uh, a colleague. My colleagues don't materialize out of strange machines. They're flesh and blood. And so am I, Dr. Meacham, as I hope you'll soon find out. Although I admit at the moment I do appear immaterial. But no matter. I represent a group which is seeking scientists of exceptional ability. All prospects must pass an aptitude test, which you've just done. I'm flattered. 
Only I don't remember applying for any job. You didn't? I beg your pardon, Mr. Wilson. Your camera will pick up nothing but black fog. Images on the interrosseter don't register on film. Put it away, Joe. Do continue, Dr. Meacham. We test out people without their knowledge. We leave nothing to chance. Except the chance that I'm not interested in you or your group. Come, come, Doctor. It's not possible that a man of your scientific curiosity wouldn't want to find out who I am, where I come from, wouldn't give his right arm for more examples of our superior technical knowledge. I think I can assume, Dr. Meacham, that you're sufficiently intrigued to come to an immediate decision. We'd like you to join our team, as you might say, at once. You'll make arrangements to leave immediately. Wait a moment. I didn't say... At 5 o'clock Wednesday morning, our plane will land at your field. It will wait exactly five minutes and then depart. Whether I'm aboard or not. On Wednesday morning, Cal and Joe are at the airfield waiting for Exeter's plane. There is a heavy fog that day, and all planes have been grounded. So Cal and Joe are amazed when they hear the motors of Exeter's plane fly overhead. Exeter's plane comes in and lands safely at the airfield. The plane is unmanned and only has one seat. Exeter is flying the airplane by remote control via his interrocitor. Cal boards the plane and Joe begs him not to go. Exeter's plane takes off and flies across the country to an airfield somewhere in Georgia. Upon landing, Cal is greeted by Dr. Ruth Adams. Good morning. Good morning. Where am I? Georgia. I kind of expected Neptune from Mars. Exeter asked me to greet you. I'm Dr. Ruth Adams. Ruth Adams. But this is wonderful. I never expected. Ruth, I'm Cal Meacham. Cal. Dr. Meacham, of course. Four or five years ago, conference on thermal problems in nuclear reactors. Boston, wasn't it? Vermont. We were lecturing to a symposium of graduate students. Summer, three years ago, after classes would go swimming in a little river near the school. You were awful sissy about that icy water. Now, Ruth, don't tell me you've forgotten. Dr. Meacham, all I can say is I'm deeply flattered. Maybe a little envious of the girl you've mistaken me for. And now I think Exeter is waiting to greet you. So Cal and Ruth hop into a 1950s Woody station wagon and head to Exeter's house. Exeter greets Cal and Ruth at the house and introduces Cal to his assistant, Brack. Exeter invites Cal and Ruth into his office. This is where Exeter tries to recruit Cal to become a member of his team. Just reminding Dr. Meacham that I'd promised to produce some of his colleagues in the flesh. May I use you as my exhibit A? I'm afraid Dr. Meacham isn't too happy with me. At the airport, he was sure we were old friends. Obviously, I was wrong. The lady hardly remembers me. What is more important is... Who we are, what we're doing here. Dr. Meacham, I represent a group of scientists who work with but one purpose, to put an end to war. Naturally, such a goal can't be attained without experts of superior ability. Men of vision, men such as you, Doctor, gathered here, exchanging information daily, putting aside all thoughts of personal success. We hope to achieve exciting new techniques, leap years ahead of the others. I don't think I need to tell you how effective our voices will be when the world learns of our achievements. Well, there you have it. Nothing new, perhaps, but then, what is? However, let me assure you, Doctor, that we are dedicated men and women. 
And as such, we can accomplish wonders. Well, what do you think of us? Well, this all sounds great, Mr. Exeter, but why me? Dr. Meacham, we happen to know that you're on the threshold of discovering limitless amounts of free nuclear energy. More specifically, the conversion of lead into uranium. Dr. Adams here has been working along the same lines as you have. Perhaps just a step behind you. Although I might add that both of you are way ahead of anyone else in your field. Be careful. Exeter will flatter you to death. The truth is never flattering, Dr. Adams. Now suppose you relax and think it over. Suppose when I do, I find I can't go along with you. Naturally, we'll expect you to be discreet about what you've seen here. Otherwise, you're free to leave, Dr. Meacham. As free as air. Later that evening at dinner, Cal Ruth and another scientist, Steve Carlson, excuse themselves from the dinner table. The three scientists go down to Cal's new laboratory. Cal knows something is strange going on at Exeter's house. But once in the lab, Cal questions Ruth and Steve about what's really going on at Exeter's house. Standing here with the lead slab in front of us, the lead reactor panel behind us, we're shielded from nuclear rays. Could be even from the prying eyes of Exeter's interocitor. What's your opinion, doctors? All right, I'll spell it out for you. The two of you walk around here as if you're scared of your own shadows. Ruth's even afraid to admit she and I once might have held hands. Well, that's okay with me. But either I've got to figure I'm a little cracked or... That Exeter's cat has got both your tongues. You ever stop to think that we have a right to throw a few questions at you, Meacham? What are you doing here? Look, I received a darn fool catalog. I couldn't resist it. I built it in a Rossiter, right on that trick plane, and that's all I know. But so help me. In the next ten minutes, I'm going to know a lot more. I believe him, Steve. Well, I guess I do, too. Now we're getting somewhere. To begin with, Cal... I was the girl in Vermont. Then why all of that? Because we couldn't take a chance. There's always the possibility you spent a few minutes under one of Exeter's sun lamps before you got here. Sun lamp? That's what it looks like. Only instead of a suntan, you get your brain cells rearranged. Steve had a peek at one. Yeah, it's similar to lobotomy. Renders useless certain areas of the brain. Those areas controlling the power of the will. Up until now, Steve and I have been spared. We think Engelberg too, but we haven't the slightest idea why. Well, what about the others? Try talking to them. Well, that leaves the big one. Who's Exeter working for? We don't know. All we do know is what you've already guessed. Exeter is desperately trying to come up with new sources of atomic energy. And we're the geniuses he's depending upon to deliver for him. Well, he might get a surprise. The next day, Exeter demonstrates to Cal the power of the neutrino ray by burning a hole through some lead shielding. Exeter knows that Cal has been talking to Ruth and Steve and asks him not to meet with them again. And the log of 236 plus 1.008 to the 9th. It's an interesting equation. I'll check it. You may find it'll help you over some of the more difficult obstacles, Meacham. And now, Doctor, I'd like to acquaint you with another of our accomplishments. Notice that section of lead plate behind you. Please bring it forward, about eight feet.
Please move back. By the door, Doctor. process is working properly, the effectiveness of this ray will be increased enormously. Tell me, Exeter, why should a communication device be equipped with a destructive ray? Television waves can't penetrate mountains. With the aid of neutrino rays, we can. Neutrino rays? You've just observed one in action. I suppose the neutrino could be described as the missing link between energy and matter. Fascinating. If destruction is our goal... On the contrary, just recently one of our rays was used for quite another purpose. More specifically, to save your life. The green light? Exactly. Picking a plane up in midair and conveying it safely to Earth. After it first immobilized my controls. Meacham, I must ask you to have faith in our ultimate aims. I must also ask you to refrain from meeting with any of your co-workers again, except in our usual channels. Any way you want it. Very good, Doctor. And your patience, I promise you, will be rewarded. Later, Cal, Ruth, and Steve decide to make an escape. At the same time, Exeter receives orders to destroy the facility, including all the scientists, and return to his homeworld. Brack uses the death ray from Exeter's interocitor to kill Steve and another scientist. Cal and Ruth try to escape in Exeter's airplane but are captured by a tractor beam and pulled inside Exeter's ship. I'm sorry that our visit below had to be terminated so dramatically, but time allowed for nothing else. I can assure you we mean you no harm. Like Steve Carlson and Engelborg, like the others in that house? What happened was beyond my control. What happened was mass murder. We're not all masters of our souls, Meacham. That's a nice little phrase coming from you. I learned it on Earth. Look, the two of you are beginning a strange journey. A journey that no Earth people have ever undertaken before. Now, whether you consider me a devil or a saint is unimportant. What is important is that you're here on this spaceship. Suppose, then, for the time being, we call it truce. As scientists, at least, Meacham. Ruth, don't tell me that as a woman you're not curious about our destination. Where are we going? To a planet we call Metaluna. Metaluna? There's no such planet in the solar system. Metaluna lies far beyond your solar system, in outer space. The telescope will convince you. Come. Observer, prepare a view of the second quadrant, please. I won't ask you to condone what we've done. All I ask is that when you understand the plight of my people, try to have more sympathy for our deeds. Earth. It's being left far behind. Before Cal and Ruth reach Metaluna, they must go through a conversion process. They will enter these conversion tubes which will adapt them to the atmosphere on Metaluna. Prepare to leave Earth's orbit. All conversion must be completed during this time period. Follow me if you will. 
Exeter, what are you using for power? How are you controlling the fantastic temperature on this ship? What's to prevent us from floating around like a bunch of balloons once we get away from Earth's gravity? Well, to answer the last question first, we create our own gravitational field, which means that no matter what position our ship takes in space, we here inside remain right side up. But at the moment, if we're going to get you to Metaluna alive, there's a little procedure you'll have to go through. What are you doing to them? Metaluna's atmospheric pressure is like that in your greatest oceans. If we entered Metaluna's orbit without conversion, we'd be crushed to death. Then in going from Metaluna to Earth, the tissues of our bodies would dwindle. We'd disintegrate completely. Correct, Meacham. If we're fortunate enough to return to Earth. After the conversion process, Exeter explains to Cal and Ruth that his homeworld, Metaluna, is at war with another planet named Zygon. Don't you understand, Doctor? Those two objects, they appear to be comets, but their paths are identical. Almost as though some intelligence were controlling them. Your deduction is quite correct, Doctor. Although the objects are not comets, they're meteors controlled by spacecraft of Zagon. They're going to hit us! They're going to hit us! We've offered to make peace with Zagon, but to no avail. Is Zagon a planet? A planet that was once a comet. As you can see, their spacecraft are actually guiding the meteors against us. As they get closer to Metaluna, Exeter explains to Cal and Ruth the situation on his planet. What you're observing may well be the beginning of the end for our world. The Zagon meteors are beginning to get through our ionized layer. That haze, a field of intense radiation. As you can well imagine, such a screen requires the output of great amounts of atomic energy. And you're running out. That's why you were sent to Earth. And why you sent for us. You need uranium. In gigantic quantities. Our own deposits are exhausted. As our power diminishes, our protection fails. Exeter's ship lands safely below the surface of Metaluna, which is under heavy attack by Zagon meteors. Exeter brings Cal and Ruth to Metaluna's leader, the Monitor. Welcome, Exeter. Observed your flight. Almost counted you lost. Your Earth creatures. Dr. Adams, Dr. Meacham, the Monitor, supreme head of our government. Regrettable there is no time for amenities. I am certain your minds have difficulty grasping this transition from Earth to Metaluna. I have given them as much indoctrination as possible. Then you know that shortly we can expect Zagon to commence and sustain an all-out attack. Our ionization layer must be maintained until our relocation is affected. Relocation? To where? To your Earth. A peaceful relocation. We hope to live in harmony with the citizens of your Earth. In harmony? Our knowledge and weapons would make us your superiors, naturally. Then why haven't your superior brains solved the problem of synthesizing uranium? Most of our scientists are dead. Our major laboratories destroyed. The war has reduced our population to a mere handful. That is true, Meacham. It is indeed typical that you Earth people refuse to believe in the superiority of any world but your own. Children looking into a magnifying glass, imagining the image you see is the image of your true size. Our true size is the size of our God. Do you still insist, Exeter, that we can allow any of these Earth creatures to have free minds? I do. I know them. I've lived with them. 
You have wasted our time. Take them to the thought transference chamber. Please come with me. I'm afraid you have no choice. Exeter is ordered to take Cal and Ruth to the thought transference chamber. On the way, they encounter a mutant. I'd hope to prepare you somewhat beforehand. This is a mutant. We've been breeding them here for ages to do menial work. Well, actually, they're similar to some of the insect life on your own planet. Larger, of course, with a higher degree of intelligence. This one has been given orders to guard this corridor as long as we're here. I beg of you, go inside. Cooperate voluntarily. If you do, I give you my word that you will not be harmed or your mind's changed in any way. You defy the monitor. I already have. Do you believe in Cal? In this place, I wouldn't believe my grandmother. Cal and Ruth refuse to go into the thought transference chamber. So Cal slugs Exeter, and then Cal and Ruth jump into one of the rail cars and head back to Exeter's ship. When they arrive at Exeter's ship, they find a mutant guarding it. Exeter shows up shortly and tells the mutant to stand aside. Cal and Ruth board Exeter's ship. Exeter is attacked by a mutant, and Cal has to come to his rescue. Cal and Ruth and Exeter board the spaceship and take off just as Metaluna heats up and turns into a lifeless radioactive sun. Unbeknownst to Cal, Ruth, and Exeter, the wounded mutant has also boarded the spaceship. The mutant reaches the bridge and attacks Ruth. Cal and Exeter are still in the conversion tubes and can't help. Ruth manages to outrun the mutant, but eventually the mutant dies from the pressure conversion. Exeter has been mortally wounded by the mutant and is dying. He manages to fly the spaceship back to Earth, but the ship's energy source is almost depleted. Speed is diminishing. We're now in the atmosphere of Earth. Your plane is where you left it in the cargo hold. A conventional way for you to return to Earth, I admit, but perhaps the most practical. Where are you going? Our universe is vast, full of wonders. I'll explore, perhaps find another Metaluna, a place inhabited by beings not unlike myself. You see, I'm more adventurous than you imagine me. Exeter, you're a liar. You've used all your power bringing us here. Even if you had a place to go, you couldn't make it. Come with us. We'll heal your wounds. I'm afraid my wounds can never be healed. You have things to teach us. Thank you. We're over your earth now. It's time for you to go. Farewell. Cal and Ruth board Exeter's plane and fly back to Earth. Exeter dives his spaceship into the atmosphere. As the spaceship accelerates to the atmosphere, it begins to catch fire. Soon the spaceship is covered with flames and explodes when it crashes into the ocean. And that's the end of today's movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. This Island Earth was Universal's first color science fiction movie. This Island Earth was made on a budget of $800,000 and grossed over $1.7 million in the U.S. in 1955. Most of the Metaluna sequences were directed by Jack Arnold. It was rumored that the front office was unhappy with the footage Newman shot and had Arnold reshoot it. In a magazine article, the special effects department admitted that the mutant costume originally had legs that matched the upper part, but had so much trouble making the legs work and look properly, they were forced by the studio 
to have the mutant just wear a pair of gray pants. According to Faith Demurg, the pants on her costume were so skin tight that she could not wear underwear, and her female assistant had to help her put them on and take them off. Robert Nichols and Douglas Spencer worked together in another classic science fiction movie. I don't know if you caught it earlier, but they were in The Thing from Another World together. Robert Nichols played Lieutenant Ken McPherson, and Donald Spencer played the newspaper reporter Ned Scotty Scott. He's the one that gave the Watch for the Skies monologue at the end of the movie. And that's all I have for movie information. Now it's time for the Star Trek Connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I try to find a Star Trek connection in every movie and TV show I watch. Today's Star Trek connection is another deep pull. Rex Reason is today's Star Trek connection. Rex Reason has a younger brother named Rhodes. Rhodes Reason was on the second season episode of Star Trek, the original series, Bread and Circuses. It's the episode where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a planet where the Roman Empire has survived into the 20th century. Rhodes plays the former gladiator Flavius. And that's it for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about this island Earth. I watched the 2006 DVD release from Universal Studios. This is a bare-bones DVD. It only came with the theatrical trailer. That's it. Uh, the picture and sound quality were pretty good. I love this island Earth. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this island Earth is my favorite 1950 science fiction movie. I think the cast did a great job. Love the cast. Uh, I think Jeff Morrow was great as Exeter. Uh, Rex Reason, he was perfect as the all-American square jaw scientist slash jet pilot guy. Um, Faith Demurg was pretty good. I mean, she did her role as the damsel in distress. Um, even Russell Johnson was good for the little part he was in the movie before he got blown up by Brack, who was a dick in the movie. Um, I love the story. You got these two warring planets, Metaluna and Zygon. Metaluna is losing the war. So Metaluna sends people to Earth to recruit scientists to help them create nuclear energy to keep their shields up. That's a great story. Um, the special effects in the movie were top notch for the day. And in my opinion, they still look pretty good, even though they are 63 years old. Um, there's a lot of great matte paintings and miniatures in this movie. The best miniature, in my opinion, was the landing of the surface of Metaluna. And you could see that it, the surface was devastated and they moved underground. And that was really cool. Um, the mutant costume was really, really good, except for the gray slacks. Um, I also liked Brack and Exeter's makeup. That was pretty cool. They kind of look like tall Oompa Loompas. Um, this Island Earth is a great classic science fiction movie. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. You won't be disappointed. I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. One more thing before I go. There's also a mystery science theater version of this movie. It stars Mike Nelson and our favorite robots, Crow and Tom Serval. I love this movie, too. I can watch the original movie and quote lines from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version. It's a fun movie. If you watch the original, then watch this one, the MSK 3000 version. It's great. On a scale from 1 to 10, I got to give this movie a solid 8. It's not the best movie in the genre, 
but it's definitely worth watching. And those are my comments about this island Earth. That's it for today's podcast. Before I end today's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back on the podcast next week with a vidcast on the upcoming summer movies. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5, signing off. Transmission.